You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. Hello, everyone. I would like to begin by acknowledging that both Manav and myself are having this conversation today uh, on the lands of the Lenin and Api peoples. I would like to pay my respects to their elders past and present and to acknowledge the responsibility that this ongoing existence of their laws creates for me as a jurist. So my name is Adil Hassan Khan, uh, and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow with the Laureate Program in Global Corporations and International Law at the Melbourne Law School. It gives me great pleasure to welcome all of you for this third session of the Academic Skills Circle for this year. The TASC is a collaboration between ELA, the UNSW Critique Network of Professor Ben Golder, and La Trobe International and Comparative Law Cluster, co-led by Dr. Kathleen Birrell. Our session today is titled Archival Research in the South. So it gives me even more immense pleasure to introduce to you our speaker for today, uh, Manav Kapoor. Manav is currently in the throes of completing his doctoral research at the Department of History at Princeton University. And we are grateful that he's generously agreed to take out time from this, as everyone knows, intense activity to have this <laughs> chat with us today. So uh, please uh, join me in welcoming Manav. Okay, Manav, to sort of uh, get us started. Thank you so um, much, Adil. This is, I mean, the, the pleasure is all mine. And and as you know, uh, all, all of us PhD scholars spend, spend all our time trying to procrastinate. So this is a great opportunity to at least do something useful. Yeah, usefully procrastinate. <laughs> but hopefully uh, learn a lot from you about how you've been at the craft of uh, of your work. So without further ado, I thought I'd get started off in this conversation. And I wanted to ask you a question that you are someone who's really uh, interesting in that you, uh, you've chosen to do a PhD in history after having been trained in law and having taught law in India and Jindal. So can you tell us uh, something about this transition and the choice and the stakes of this choice? So why did you decide to do a PhD in history? And why do you think that's significant instead of doing a legal history work in a law school or something like that? Thanks, Adil, for this question. I mean, this is this is something that I've kind of been thinking, like had to think about quite a bit. I mean, it was a bit of a jump. And so I even now I kind of describe myself often as either a recovering lawyer or a lapsed lawyer in some ways. But I, I guess the, the question was about how I saw the project and where I wanted to do it. So I I had thought, I mean, initially when I was thinking about doing a PhD, I was confused about whether I wanted to do something in international law or whether I wanted to work on on the the the, the laws around the partition. And um when I was thinking about that, I realized that most STD programs in the US and, and most PhD programs in the UK also, for instance, don't really have a coursework component, whereas history programs typically do. And and you know, when I was thinking about this project, I realized that I wanted more uh, disciplinary training. I thought the doctoral project that I was going to work on, which is which is on the partition and evacuate property, demanded it. So I was I was trying to work on citizenship and property in the wake of the partition. And you know, while the law is omnipresent and 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 is and is present in a in a set of layers around that, it's always I've always thought of it now as part of a broader story. And for that, I think I needed a little more grounding in the humanities generally. 
So, you know, like if I, I mean, and so I think what is at stake is, is how you see your project, how you see it engaging with other, other, other work around it, where you posit the law in it. So the law will be there. I mean, the, 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 you cannot think about working on property rights without looking at the law. You cannot think of working at working on evacuee property and citizenship without looking at, you know, the, the both the promise of the constitution and the ways in which that promise has been whittled down successively. But, you know, I feel like the law is only a small part of the dislocations at the partition that people grappled with and negotiated after the partition. And I think that's what I'm trying to bring out in my work. And and, and for that, I thought I had to switch to, you know, to, to history rather than law. So that's really helpful. And, and especially thinking about the where doing history where in uh, the US or, or somewhere else, that's significant as well. But if just to take it back, if you could give us a sort of a precy of what your PhD is, um, what are you? What is your project? Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess it's always really hard to kind of explain what your work is, uh, and especially in a Saxon form. So basically, I'm what I'm trying to do is I'm looking at at property rights and and how they are affected by partition. Um, so I'm looking at I, I'm I'm looking at the evacuee property legislations that the the many legislations that both India and Pakistan came up with, and the the two different regimes that they engendered one on the western border and one on the eastern border. I mean, when I say western border, I basically mean all of India apart from Bengal in the northeast and or and and West Pakistan, where over there the whole idea was that migration was seen as something permanent. Once people left. You didn't really want them to come back because you wanted to use their property to compensate those who were coming in. Uh, I mean, this is what the the the, the legislators and, and bureaucrats had planned. Uh, on the east, the situation was very, was very different because they'd they'd seen the cataclysmic violence that had happened in in the west. They they tried their hardest to avoid it that that kind of dislocation. And on the east, therefore, evacuee property meant that property was literally kept in trust for people. Now, what happened with these laws was basically that they really did not take account of what people really wanted and of their complicated and messed and and like messy lived realities. And, and and that's what I'm trying to bring out. So so whether it was the fact that people uh, crossed over to Pakistan and then came back to India in in the late 1940s, uh, which is something the law did not contemplate on the Western Front, or whether uh, refugees from East Bengal or West Bengal crossed the border and didn't want to go back on the East, and and so that created its own kind of complicated set of uh, events. And 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 like responses uh, to each other. So so both countries worked in tandem, either you know either in a planned way, or in an unplanned way as as kind of a set of you know like reciprocal measures that were taken. Uh, and so I think like in in doing that, what I'm doing, what I'm also doing is I'm looking at partition as a as a process. It's like a, it's a series of events. It's not a singular event in itself. And and I'm looking at how both countries were produced and, and the role of the law in that, whether it was, you know, I mean, and in terms of the law, I'm looking not only in as, as as at what the law said, but how the law was interpreted, what the law was. So for example, ordinances, which which in the colonial era had uh, that was the odium of the of Indian nationalist leaders, were used throughout 
the late 1940s to change uh, evacuee property laws almost on a weekly basis. So, you know, foreign observers, I mean, I was reading this this thing in the British archives where they actually refer to this as an ordinance war of, or like the, the war of the ordinances between both countries. And so I guess that's, that's a very um, short summary of what my work Thank you so much. And I, I, I can say, and I'm sure a lot of uh, the audience also thinks so. It's such a significant project and it's going to have, and personally speaking, I'm really excited about the work you're doing and what significance it's going to have for other people's work as well. So thank you. So I guess sort of related to what you also were talking about at the end. So what are the, what are the kind of archives you're working with for this project? How did you go about selecting them? And how did that change, let's say, when you started off and where you are now? So I think, again, like, I, I mean, I must confess that when I started this project, even though I pitched it as a history project, I came into it very much as a lawyer. Now, what this meant was that I had no idea of how complex, of, of the archives as such, and, and like how complicated getting material from, from the archives was. I mean, in my head, I, I thought, you know, I'd, I'd saunter into the archives, say, I want material on this, 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 and this, it would be given to me and I'd leave. But but at least like, so when I first thought of this, I thought of it as, you know, looking at a set of archives, both at the national level. So I thought of looking at Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi archives, then archives in the US and in the UK as well, a set of provincial archives, both in India and, and Pakistan, and, and of and, and legal archives. So uh, case laws, the Supreme Court uh, record room, and and of course, I'd also thought of a set of private archives that I didn't really, I hadn't really thought about when I started the project. As it happened, of course, I realized that that this was extremely ambitious. So when I first spoke to my supervisor about this, and I I told him that this is what I plan to do, he smiled very indulgently at me and said, "You know, well, that, that's great, and uh, and it sounds very exciting, and uh, I think you will realize that." that some of the archival work you've planned might not happen. Uh, for a variety of reasons, it didn't. So the first thing was it was very hard to get visas to go to Pakistan. So I was able to go to Pakistan twice, but I wasn't able to get a research visa. So a lot of my Pakistani material then has come at second hand from the UK and the US. And the national archives I was able to visit were the Indian and the Bangladeshi national archives. I visited the the archives in Delhi. I visited the, the state archives in Delhi. I visited the 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 state archives in West Bengal. I've been to Lucknow, so I've done a little bit of archival work there. But then the other thing that also happened was was that I had budgeted a lot of twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one for my um, for my archival research, and then the pandemic kind of drove a coach and forth through this plan. So finally, I mean, I've looked at, like, I've, I've used the National Archives of India and Pakistan. I've used um, India and Bangladesh. I've also done a research trip to the UK, which is very useful. So the British Library and the British National Archives in Kew are extremely useful for South Asian stuff in the 1950s and 60s. They're, I mean, there is a colonial, a post-colonial colonial gaze, but, but Regardless of that, that's still very useful. Um, I've also, for the Pakistani stuff, I've also had to rely on a lot of published legal stuff. So whether it's, you know, laws, legislative debates, 
uh, case laws have been very useful in in kind of trying to uncover that story. And a few private archives, so newspaper archives, for instance, I've used the the Punjab National Bank archive in Delhi. They they have a few documents. So that's, I mean, I guess in a sense, it's your work kind of suggests your archives. And as you kind of keep, you know, as, as you think about your project over time, as the project changes its shape, uh, you know, that, that suggests the archives. Often, in some cases, your project also changes because of what you don't find at the archives. So when you realize that there's that that you don't have access to some stuff, then the 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 kind of things you're looking at will also have to change. You'll have to think about how how you can incorporate that. If you can't, then how do you circumvent that? So I feel like particularly, uh, I mean, the, the this is this was a very eye opening experience. I think in terms of what I thought archival research would be like and what it actually did. That's uh, really helpful. Is uh, archive fever and archive disorientation. And I guess mindful of the anxiety this might generate in people about to head off to the archive. I What are the tips you'd share for someone who's just started their doctoral work and they plan to go to the archives or in the middle of their doctoral work was their first trip? So any tips, advice that you'd have, make sure do's and don'ts. So in terms of do's and don'ts, I would say the first thing that you should do is you know, in a sense, um, zero in on the archive that you're planning to visit um, and uh, and contact them. So I think that's very useful because um, particularly in, I guess, in South Asia, it's, it's useful because they actually help. You get a sense of whether they have the material, whether they're willing to use it. The, the other thing I discovered was, was that um, a lot of the time I wanted to visit some archives coincided with digitization fever before the pandemic. So everything was getting digitized. I mean, I went to West Bengal and I was told that I couldn't access anything from the 1940s to the 1960s. And so when I said I'm working on the partition of India, they kind of looked at me and shrugged and said, well, you can look at the 20s. And I was like, thank you, but that's not really helpful. So um, so I think like getting in touch with them will help because then you get a sense of what is available. You also often from the websites, in cases when like where, where archives have websites, so the West Bengal, I mean, the Bangladesh National Archives has a good website. The Indian uh, National Archive has also managed to digitize a significant amount of its collection. So sometimes you're often told that you can find a lot of this online. This is something called Abhilek Patal in India. Um. But you know, the other thing I've realized that worked after in, in these conversations with people before you went to the archives is that often the, you know, either the archivists or the staff at the archives have a sense of who you are and 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 are kind of somewhat favorably disposed towards you. And that can help because that can help in sorting in, in the, you know, in, in terms of kind of smoothening or at least being aware of what the procedure is. Once you're at the arc, I mean, before you leave, when you're thinking of equipment, I think it's it's pretty simple if photos are allowed and, and increasing the archives and now allowing that, you should keep, you know, 
I, I usually use my phone, but I know people who've used cameras as well for photos. It's I think it's also very important to keep a keep a notebook with a pencil at the archives and, and like keep making notes. Because I think I I certainly in my first visit to the archives in 2019 underestimated how important notes would be in, in terms of when I when I when I start writing. Um so I think also the other thing I would suggest is that if you can try to make two sets of trips to the archives. So the first should be a, a longer stint where you where you collect material more or less indiscriminately. And I think that's important because, you know, again, like when you start writing, unless you're very planned, I certainly am not. When you start writing, you realize that a lot of the material you collected is not very relevant to what you're trying to write. Uh, but conversely, you also realize that there's some other stuff you you might need. So I would suggest it's also important to, after this, after writing, so like while writing, I would suggest you don't visit the archive or you kind of limit your archival exposure because then there's this constant, you know, set archival FOMO that that happens. There's a, there's a fear of missing out here. Like, oh, wait, let me see if I can put in more stuff. But once you have most of your stuff in place, one a mopping up visit to the archive is is often useful because then you know exactly what you want or like basically what you want and to what extent. And you also have a sense of what the archives have. And if you keep that short, that is also incentive for you not to, you know, to to just use that as a as a as a fill in the gap thing and not to start thinking of something totally different. So I'd say like when when one when one's with the archives, it's it's kind of important to do, to, you know, like do one trip where you collect a lot of material and you spend a lot of time just just thinking about thinking lesser about what you need and just trying to collect as much as you can on 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 topics that is related to your work, and and then maybe do a second trip after. So that's, that's really helpful. That, I mean, that's worked for me. I guess uh, flowing on from that, and you mentioned the specificity of South Asian archives and doing work in archives. So I sort of want to ask you a question about what do you have advice or do you have any advice for researchers working with politically sensitive archives? And I'm thinking maybe in terms of how to publish the stuff, but even before that, accessing what are quote unquote politically sensitive archives, any any experiences or tips you want to share on that front in South Asia in particular? So I haven't really, I mean, a lot of my material has kind of, has been in in archives that that are not seen as politically sensitive, but, but a lot of it has been sensitive as well. So I think that, I mean, firstly, I'm saying that I would say that in terms of thinking about a, a cross-South Asian project, that's that's now, I think now it's, it's, it's in a way, for South Asian citizens, it's more difficult than it would have been earlier. So, you know, it's it's very difficult even now with digitization to get material from both countries. And and so getting in is is difficult. Also, if you're researching both in India and Pakistan and you're not a citizen of the country you're researching in, 
the process is much more complicated anyway, regardless of 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 how sensitive your work is. So, so for that, I would suggest, you know, when you contact the the archive, you should also uh, get apply for the research clearance from the Indian consulate. Now, you know, usually early or the Pakistani consulate. Well, in the Indian case, it used to be a formality earlier, and uh, people didn't really care. But now as things are, are heating up and I think as academics, academic work is coming in for scrutiny, it's very important to have it only because if you don't, you can get into trouble at the archive. You will also need a, a letter of introduction from the embassy that of the country you're a citizen of. The National Archives need it now, even the state archives need it. The other thing is have letters from the university that you're working in. Or, or studying in. Also keep informing the university of what you're doing, because I think it's important for them to know what's going on and, and, and what you're up to in case the archives need additional information. And I think now what has started to happen is that they are starting to crack down. So, you know, I I mean, my when I was looking at files on, on Pakistan and in India and Pakistan in the 40s and early 50s, when I was looking at citizenship stuff, Particularly when I was looking at Assam at files in in about you know citizenship in Assam in the early 1950s, I was doing this bit of archival work in uh, November and December 2019 entirely coincidentally. But this was also when the CEA protest was 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 at its height. So the the Citizenship Amendment Act in India, and my work did come did come into scrutiny. I mean, they, they kept on asking me questions on what I was working on. Sometimes files I had requested and and, and files that had come actually uh, went missing. And so when I asked the archivists, and I was worried because I, I didn't know where the files had gone. So I said, I'd just get them here. And they said, oh, yes, that's fine. But the Home Ministry has asked for them. Uh, so I said, okay, when, when are they going to come back? And... Uh, I was told that they had no idea and um, I applied for them again after the pandemic and I was told that they were still with the Home Ministry. So I don't know whether they were actually with the Home Ministry or whether there was just this uh, disinclination to share those particular files. But they asked, I mean, I think there is, I think the one important thing I will say somewhat unofficially is that do try to make, you know, personal contacts both at private and at public archives. I think that's very important because, I mean, especially with private archives, right, it's, there are no rules. So it's perfectly possible for stuff that you you have access to right now for those who own those letters or, or, or documents or whatever to decide that they don't want to share it later. So, so like do make personal contacts and, and like try to get as much as quickly as possible. I think it's, no, I think that's invaluable. And I guess on that line about personal cultivating sort of personal relations, is there something you want uh, to cultivating personal relations with booksellers as well in South Asia? I heard that, I mean, what I know that booksellers can be a good sort of guide in 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 where the private archives are, who to go, and they have their own sort of private archives as well. So if you want to say something about that. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I don't, really know very much about that I, I know i know i know people have used them i've i've used one sets of publishers archives um 
but but I have been told that booksellers, particularly older established ones, are very useful. So I there was one. Uh, I mean, in Delhi, I've used uh, this. I've used people in uh, Darya Ganj who've actually done work on. I mean, who who've uh, who were you know like who had contracts with the government for government publications. And they've and that has been very useful. So I found a lot of government publications from the fifties and early sixties that have, you know, helped. But uh, I, that's not really uh, something I've actually engaged with. Um, yeah. So no, thank you so much. Uh, and I guess to sort of um, as a final question from my side, and then we'll open it up. Um, I'd love to sort of hear about any sort of um, experiences and encounters in the archive uh, that you want to share with us that you think were sort of something unexpected or something sort of um, fabulous that you encountered in the archive. Uh, I mean, so I must say that my archival experience has, I think, been very happy, uh, largely because of the conversations I've had there and the, and the, and the people I've gotten to meet at the archives. So I feel like that is definitely a plus of of researching in South Asian archives. Partly because you like you spend so much time waiting for files <laughs> that you are forced into conversation with people, and that 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 creates very very um, I guess both academically and in some cases personally meaningful friendships and relationships. Uh, so that that is I think one 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 advantage of of the archive in South Asia that that people haven't really thought enough about it. But also, you know, I mean, so I'm working on the partition and um, and I think part of my interest in the partition comes from the fact that all four of my grandparents who were not married, uh, migrated at partition. So one of the, I think one of the most fun things has been seeing evidences of stories I was told uh, about about partition, about the migration, about where people resettled. Uh, you know, in in government documents. In a sense, it's made it much more real to me to see it, to see that in in on paper. I think this is maybe a you know, like uh, I guess a failing of my loyally historical mind. Um, but I think the most. I mean, actually, since you asked me this question, the most exciting thing that has happened to me in the archive uh, was just this March when I'd gone to India briefly and I visited the archives on a whim because I was there for two days and I was trying to look for some material. And I was looking through the compensation files for uh, for Punjab and, and, uh, and these are all kind of arranged district-wise but at random so there's no there's no it's not in alphabetical order it's not in terms of which town which city so the so you're just flipping through stuff and uh, i found my great great grandfather's file for compensation i mean i i found the name so i i, I requisitioned it and the name's not a very uncommon name so i didn't know whether it would be him or not but it was and I think that was really exciting because, you know, I also I think because I've been to Pakistan, so I'd actually seen the the site of the house and it was just something to kind of see it 
see the see the claim being made for it see the you know the list of dependents see my grandmother's name in that so i feel like that was a that was quite a moving uh, and and very exciting experience in the archives but i think that that's but the other the other thing is that the archives can often be fun in an unexpected way right so you can like you, you'll be reading a, a long rather complicated file and then suddenly there'll be these these little vignettes of information that will come up and and in fact there's there's another uh, sorry I'm, I know we're a little pressed for time but this one really interesting story in the dispatches that the the deputy high commissioner of india in lahore was sending to the indian government where and and that kind of tells you about how tangled the relationship between both countries was in the early 50s where he says that you know the the chief rehabilitation officer of indian punjab was visiting pakistan and had a meeting with the pakistani rehabilitation minister and uh, the rehabilitation minister had asked him to come for dinner after that and he'd given him his address i think it was 27 empress road or something and said you know if you need directions i can have you picked up from the hotel you're staying in and the rehabilitation officer from india said well actually i know the house because my grandparents used to live here before partition and so i spent summer holidays here throughout the 20s and 30s so it's just this kind of these these really human stories that that pop up even in the most legalistic of documents and i think that's that's the fun of of, of this so yeah i guess that's um thank you so much uh, no that uh, that's a good note to sort of end uh, our conversation on uh, thank you so much so i'll open it up for uh, any questions that people in the audience have uh, please just uh, raise use the raise hand function so i'll uh, yeah ben please go ahead thanks adil thanks manav um that was an incredibly rich conversation i'd love listening um to your questions adil and your answers manav um just on that last note i am the i'm not a historian i should say um and i haven't dabbled even in the archives but i'm the son of a historian and i grew up hearing my mother's stories of working in the australian colonial archives and one of the things that she would always stress was the kind of was the question of of the unexpected and the joys and the pleasures of the archive that you just ended on i still remember stories that she would say she got so close to some of the historical protagonists that she only obviously encountered across the centuries through the archive that she felt she could have a sense of when they were upset and when you know there was a particular colonial governor whose name now alludes me but mum was so um spent so much time reading his papers that she could tell when he was really angry when he would sign his name on these documents because he would blot his pen and and just the 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 real nitty-gritty kind of granularity of and how that connects to these relationships that she she had with these people um but my question isn't about the kind of presence of a mark on a paper it's actually about the the question of absence so i was kind of interested there were a number of absences i suppose you spoke about manav when you were talking about the archive so the question of not having access to the to the pakistani archives i i think you were suggesting and that you had to get that second hand through more colonial sources etc um my question is about when you go off to an archive expecting or wanting or really needing to find something and you don't find that thing, and then you have to train change tack um 
my colleague, Martin Craigia, who is a legal theorist and doesn't work in archives, or at least I don't think he does, um, he's a fantastic storyteller. And he tells this story about how when he was a PhD student, his doctoral advisor sent him off to write a thesis about a particular thinker on, on the rule of law. He said, go off and read everything that this person has ever written. So Martin, apparently, according to this story, which is probably apocryphal, went off and read everything from juvenilia laundry lists through to magnum opuses of this great thinker, but could find no reference to law whatsoever and came back to his advisor apparently and said, look, I went, I read him from beginning to end and there was no law there. Um, I've ruined, I've wasted a year of my of my doctoral existence. And his advisor apparently rocked back in his chair and arched his eyebrow and said, no, no, that's fine. Just write a thesis about how there isn't any law in the archive. That's going to be your angle. That's going to be your take. Um, which is kind of glib, but I'm kind of interested in the way that we kind of tell ourselves stories. We go looking for things and we don't find them and we find ways to um, tell a different story um, than the one that we thought we were going to tell. But that strikes me as like on a on a personal level or an affective level for the researcher, that's really hard. You go looking for things, obviously, and you don't find them. Um, and and how hard is it to kind of <laughs> to deal with that absence when you're kind of confronted with it? Does that that's a bit of a rambling question? You can you can take it in whatever direction you like. No, I mean, I, I, I this is a very interesting question, actually, Ben, because it's it's both hard and very scary, because you know. Like when you when you're confronted with not, I mean, it's one thing to, it's one thing when you kind of know that that the material, that you know you don't have access to the material. I think in in a, in a sense that is, that that's a bit of a relief because you're like, okay, I'm barred from access to this. This exists, and maybe someone will work on it, or maybe I'll work on it later. But like, it exists. But I now have to conjecture about or like try to find out traces of what it is. The scary bit is when you go to the archives expecting to find something and then, you know, it kind of, you get, you you don't get it or you get, or, or there's just no evidence of it. And so you just like, wait, am I looking in the right place? Uh, am I not looking at, at, at the proper files? Like, am I doing something really wrong? Uh, and so like, there's this kind of crisis of faith that, that keeps, that, that kind of keeps happening to you at the archives. But I think you know what what then happens is, and I think what um, what the the advisor said in the story is also right. Then sometimes you're also then driven to answering the question of why you are not finding this, and that is often an interesting question. I mean, so so for example, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example from from stuff I was working on. So when we look at evacuee property legislation on the eastern on the on the western border between India and West Pakistan, you know, you find thousands of cases at the high court level. So you can only imagine the the, the sheer amount of litigation that it that it spawned in the 1950s and 1960s. Um when you look at the evacuee property regime on the on, on the east, you don't find any cases at all. Like you find in one case where they say that the the Western model isn't applicable here, and so I was like, "Wait, what's going on? Why why are there no cases?" And so then I kind of looked at the legislation. I looked at the intent of the legislation, and and there I finally found. Uh, I mean, I found firstly that that the whole idea was to discourage litigation, but but the rules. Of, so I mean, like the, the 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 act also had a set of rules, and one of the the rules basically used a model from 
debt collection legislation from the 1930s in saying that lawyers will be debarred from handling these cases. So, you know, like, the, like you'd, go, you'd make representations on your own to a committee. And so that, that also helped in telling a particular story of, of, of what was envisaged in, in, that kind of, in that kind of interaction. You know, it was supposed to be a less formal, more equitable uh, set of proceedings. And the very fact that the law was excluded, but that 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 this, that equity was conspicuously absent from the from the few cases that the committee handled, also tells you something about the relationship of both states and and and, and of states with their populations. I think that 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 was a useful insight. So I'm sorry, like my my answer is also a very rambling one, but it's but it's it's just you know like when you think about this, it's the 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 silences are both scary but productive because then you kind of are driven to thinking about why they exist and and I mean like also to kind of borrow from you know aspects of subaltern studies like how you can kind of either find something or or what those silences tell you. Thank you, Manas. That's yeah. amazing, Sandhya. Hi, Manav. Thanks. I can't wait to read your book uh, when it comes out eventually, not only because my own father was a refugee in partition and we went, we were able to go back to, to Pakistan and see the house where he grew up and talk to a man who was still alive, who had known my grandfather when dad was a child. Um, but I have a more banal question, which is about the lawyer meets history kind of anxiety. And it's interesting that you shifted at a relatively late stage, well, late from the perspective of in the course of your studies to doing a doctorate in history. And I guess what I've been thinking as you've been talking is that one way of thinking about the differences between what lawyers or legally trained people and historians do is in how they respond to what they find in the archive. And so we ask different questions and we do different things with the materials. But I suppose one of the anxieties that plagues me and potentially my students is whether we're just too dilettantish and whether there are things that historians training like, is there a secret handshake and um, mode of doing things that we just don't know? So we're doomed to always get it wrong? Or, I mean, what's your experience been as a lawyer in the archive? Of course, there is. There is something very different that historians do. And uh, I can't possibly share this with you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, no, I, I mean, well, I mean, have to kill me. but, but no. <laughs> No, but 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 you know, I'm I mean, sure this, Ben this was, knows. But that's from a mother to son transmission. <laughs> but 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 you know, I mean that that that's always been a fear. Right? So I feel like I, I feel like every PhD involves an imposter syndrome. But in my case, there's a there's a double imposter syndrome because I I feel like I'm no longer a lawyer and not quite a historian. And uh, so like I, I've had like responses to drafts saying. You know, this reads like a legal brief, and I have then like kind of wilted inside, as it were. But I feel, I mean, I don't think it's it's a question of being dilettantish at all. I think it's the kind of 
okay, this is hard, but I think, I think it's the kind of questions and the kind of answers that one seeks. So I feel like, as a lawyer, even in the midst of, you know, complicated terrains and recognitions of those terrains and and of uncertainty, um. I feel like there was always this need to kind of find documentary certitude in a sense. You know, I was like, this has to be, this clause, this section, this case law, this archival document has to give me a definitive footnote that can answer this question, at least in my head. And so, and, and so I feel like, I feel like I've read cases very differently. When I started out, now I kind of, you know, to use this word that a professor in law school in India used to use constantly, problematize. So I kind of constantly, like you know, you kind of constantly question who is writing this, where are they coming from, what are they doing with this, uh, and also I guess as a lawyer you're kind of driven to. To seeing the the drama around the case, often as you know, as an entertaining sideshow. But when you're kind of looking at at legal stuff as a historian, I think there's like that actually provides the the meat in the you know in like in your work as such, and and so I think the the the, the characters who in the case kind of take on their own own life i don't know if that's answering your question but i feel like that's that's partly something to do with i guess though i guess i think being a historian is kind of also being comfortable with uncertainty it, it, it's like a recognition that you cannot recreate the past that your task is not to recreate the past your task is to come up with an intellectually honest explanation but one that is contingent on a number of factors and 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 like kind of realize that it might well be disproved or questioned by other work later that will look at other things uh and that's fine i mean it 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 i mean, i'm saying this because it took me you know like a lot of time to actually internalize this um so i think that's that's in a sense an answer i have thank you um kathleen thanks so much manav and uh, this has been amazing a really interesting conversation i just wanted to pick up some of that um discussion about the encounter between legal and historical methods um a little bit more um but and also some of the other things you were talking about in terms of presence and absence and finding um, or elevating um, the um, things that might have been marginalised. And you mentioned earlier the colonial and post-colonial gaze in the archive, and I'm wondering as you come at this um, originally as a legal scholar, um, how you navigate and negotiate that um, and thinking about the reliance and scepticism and the tension between that and um, Adil mentioned, um, you know, archive fever and you know, the idea of the archive as the source of originary authority and as a prosthesis for memory and really um, 
dealing with um, a critique of that. So I just wondered if you could comment on that. Thank you. Well, thank you for that question, Helen. I think that's a, a bit of a whopper, I think. But so I think, you know, okay, so I'll tell you my 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 journey with this. And I think that's kind of that that's how I can explain this because so I I mean I think you realize at some point after looking at stuff in the archives that and I think this is somewhat also I mean this is also like what lawyers do in a sense, like they kind of craft their arguments in particular ways, not only depending on, on, you know, on, on like what they want to achieve, but also like who, who their audience is. And and I think there's also recognition in the archives that, that the material you're getting, the information you're getting is all very is all subjective. I mean, whether whether it is from the perspective of the person who's writing it, or whether it's from the perspective of the state that that you know that, that the person is an official of. So, for example, it's kind of you know it's it's interesting because you read the let's say you read the Indian version of of a particular legal problem, and then uh, that that that. India is kind of dealing with, and then you're like, oh yes, this makes perfect sense. And you read the Pakistani side, and that makes perfect sense too. And I think, I mean, like, so I guess like what hap- what what happens with the and because of these kind of inherent biases in 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 the archives itself. I mean, both in the constitution of the archive and what is preserved and what is not, and also in terms of like who is writing. I guess it's it's you you have to kind of constantly keep thinking about who this is, why they are saying what they are, and what that means. So rather than like looking at it as the definitive pronouncement of a judge, I think it's it's more like, you know, you kind of, you are the judge in the sense, you're kind of like sifting different evidence, uh, going beyond what you have to try to understand what the the, the contours are. And, and in that kind of coming up with answers. So, you know, like, I guess in the ways in which problems are presented, in the ways in which cases and arguments are made, in archival texts, in the kind of information you find there, you constantly have to keep questioning who this is, where this is coming from, what their what their motivations. Are. I mean, I don't mean them personally. I also mean in terms of you know, like why why an Indian official is saying this, why why an official from from one ministry, for instance, is saying something that, and why someone from another ministry is saying something different, and what that tells you about the nature of the state and the nature of like the kind of 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 this problem and and the the many prisms in which it's being viewed. So I guess that's does that answer some of the question? Or yes, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, in case there are any questions, just uh, and uh, till then I have a, a secret stored up question which I didn't ask earlier, Manaf. So I'll take this opportunity to do that and sort of developing on that. I guess uh, one thing that was striking me was about the the ethnographic gaze and the archival gaze and the historian's gaze and the lawyer's gaze. There's something to um, and this I know from being partly trained as an anthropologist. One thing I was told that doing fieldwork. Of course, the recurrent thing of going to the fieldwork and coming back, and I think a lot of what you said about the archive really is um, holds true for doing uh, ethnographic fieldwork as well. 
Uh, and there, uh, as I recall with anthropologists, it's a common thing to have, a, it's an ongoing relationship. So once the, let's say the PhD is done, the monograph is out, it's published, it's, it's a grand success. Uh, is it, how common is it for people to sort of continue to have a relationship with that archive that they work with as, as PhD scholars? Uh, and I guess it, it, what one, like what's the strategies around that, that in a way one doesn't, one thing that occurs to me, you don't want to burn your bridges with the archives, archivists once the book is done, but how common is it to sort of stay with those archives and have a relationship with them through, you know, through your, uh, throughout your career as a historian? So, I mean, I can't speak, of course, from personal experience because I don't, I mean, like, I'm at the point of the dissertation where, you know, you're just like, I don't know if this is ever going to get done. But, uh, but no, from what I've seen, I feel like the, the engagement with that particular, with, with those set of archives kind of persists because usually your second work or, or subsequent work will take on some questions that you might have only tangentially addressed or kind of very obviously sidelined in your work. But but there are often links with with your with your primary work, you know, in terms of in terms of what questions you, you think of, what questions you want to work on after that, after those, after that dissertation is over. So it's not like, you know, like someone kind of works on you know, let's say partition, and then the second book is on Harappa, and it's just like a complete, or, or like ancient India, and it, there's a complete disconnect. So I feel like, you know, you, I mean, you may not engage with the same sources, but you will definitely engage with the same archives. Or, or uh, and so, and even if the question is different, I mean, a lot of, that question, a lot of like, a lot of the ideas that that push you towards that question, are coming in conversation with your first work, or or or, or in in opposition to that. You know, like you kind of often move away from things that you have thought in in that, and then move move on. So, so I think there is, I mean, like, you know, there is a kind of going back to the same archive. That that will happen at various points of time in 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 your life in response to many different questions, but but there will always be like some kind of you know like if you kind of look at a series of books by a particular uh, historian, you 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 will see that there are definite continuities in in like what intrigues them, and, and for that often the same archives or like a a permutation or combination as such of them kind of keep keep coming uh, keep keep finding place thank you so much uh and um uh i have another secret question that i stored away and that has to do with uh archive fever is fine but what about archive boredom uh what is that like i mean is there something some tips you have to share with that that sort of is that a thing that you were sort of sitting in the archives getting bored for days on and you're like, what am I doing here? <laughs> I have to read. <laughs> oh, it's Any... definitely a thing because, I mean, because, um, so I think when you're not at the archives, uh, it seems like a, like once, you, once you're kind of done with the archival trip, 
it seems like a lot of fun and very interesting and and all of it but a lot of it is deeply boring you know whether it's like the the waiting for files and the i mean the the, the indian national archives is known for you know you submit a set of 10 requisition slips and then you often get all 10 of them or nine of them back with nt which is not transferred which means it has been transferred from the ministry in question or has been lost or someone just can't be bothered to go and look for it uh, scrawled on the slips so that's one aspect of it the which is which is of course boring and depressing in its own way but the other thing is that it's also it's fun in many ways but it's also deeply monotonous over the uh, over an extended period of time and it's you know like you're kind of constantly like flipping through stuff hoping to find something that is of relevance and then you know like there is 10 forbidding files that are huge and have a little material on what you want and and so it is it is i think a very i think the thing you must do, like the thing i i at least did was kind of schedule breaks in the process so like i'd have like a two week stint in the archive and then like take two or three days off for the weekend and think of something completely different or or just like alternate your archives you know like you spend like monday to thursday at the national archives and two other days at in i mean when i was in delhi i was doing this i was kind of it would be like three days at the national archives three days or two days at the nehru memorial so you know you're kind of constantly getting other material and that's that's exciting in its own way because otherwise you know it just gets very uh some and but also i think the one thing that that actually worked for me at the archives was finding a lot of people who were in similar boats and endless supplies of chai pakoda tea and snacks were were the great uh, benefit in that so if you ever look at acknowledgments in in like history books you will always see this kind of reference to like people at the archives and and do friendships forged at the archives and you know when i read them i just be like wow this is interesting but how does that happen and then you realize how it happens when you're there thank you so much so uh, ben has a question just a really quick one if we've got time adil um manav i wanted to ask you a question i wonder if there are people on the call or listening in the future to the podcast version of this um who are kind of archive curious but aren't going to go the full hog in terms of you know doing a phd in history um and whether you've got any advice for people who are kind of using archival, um, using an archive or archival methods in a more discrete sense for a particular chapter. I mean, I imagine part of the, like a historian's response to this is like, well, no, you can't double, you've got to do a full, um, you know, a full PhD in history. And disciplines do this all the time, you know, <laughs> where Sandhya and <laughs> Kathleen and I um, did our PhDs, you know, there was a, there was a strong current of, you know, oh, well, you can't just write a thesis on Derrida. You you have to go back and read Heidegger, but you can't read Heidegger in translation. You've got to read him in the German. But then again, you have to go back and read Heraclitus. So you need to start with the ancient Greek. And of course, that's complete bullshit. We start where we start with the questions that we've got. So I wondered if you've got any re reflections for the kind of guerrilla archivists amongst us who might want to just kind of um, who might want to jump in midstream. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not. Uh not uh, influenced by Alexander Pope. I mean, like, a little learning is not a dangerous thing here. <laughs> so you don't need to drink very deep. I, I mean, again, I think it's, I think it's a very useful exercise, but I would, I would suggest if you do use the archives, kind of 
take a certain take some time in them because it's you know like i think it's important to be familiar with the like, you know i mean maybe just going to the archive for the week and try to get material is not useful because it takes time to kind of understand how archives work particularly in i think in this is particularly true of you know south asia and and like the global south because they 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 are a lot more complicated a lot less well organized and a lot less user friendly so i would say that like do budget time for that i mean like budget time to get acquainted with the archive to get a sense of you know how you will get information what you will do i mean so for instance working in delhi it took me a while to figure out when i started going to the archive how records were actually arranged and like where i had to look for, for for certain kinds of stuff so there was you know there were there were these files that had a list of what every the documents every ministry had and then you also had a newer list of which the archivists were in the process of making which was looking at what was actually transferred and if you kind of only looked at the one and didn't look at the other you'd spend weeks requesting things that wouldn't turn up so i think that i, I would say like you don't need to kind of fetishize the archive or kind of get go too deep into it but but certainly like know enough to to understand how it works and like where you'd get the material i mean i think that what what is helpful in the archives is to also be while using the material to constantly question who is saying what and why in your head i think that 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 will give you a set of useful answers that will you know that will kind of be useful for whatever work you're doing whether it's a legal thing or an anthropological anthropological thing that needs a bit of history in it or a history thing generally thank I mean, you like, so much man but but no but no exact i mean like kind of have a sense of what you're dabbling in thank you so much and uh, please join me in sort of thanking manav and sort of yeah and wishing him best for his uh, the completion of this project well, thank you so much i really need that but thank you so much this was a really really interesting conversation and i'm so glad that i i got the chance to you know meet all of you even if virtually thanks manav we'll have to have you back for the book launch I hope so thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, and we must speak about your your family's your your visiting Pakistan and going back. We must. Well thank you so much uh, and goodbye to everyone Thanks and uh, Manav I hope to see you soon. <laughs> yes. I will. Bye. Thank you Bye. so much. Thanks. Bye. Thanks everyone. You've been listening to the Ila podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash illa podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.